This is the Behave Yourself podcast, a podcast about behavioral science in the global south brought to you by the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. I'm your host, Linda Kimaru. This episode is part three of our continuing four-part series on COVID-19. Lana is a research manager at Busara, and she's speaking to some of her colleagues, along with Amy, our qualitative researcher that you've heard on previous episodes. On this call is... I have Dwani from our Indian office and Rosa from our Ethiopian office, as well as Amy, a qualitative analyst from our... Social distancing is one of the ways we're being advised to stay safe during this pandemic. It is simply keeping a safe distance from people who are not in your household. So in today's episode, Lorna wants to know, what are some proposed alternatives to social distancing, short and long term? Welcome to episode three of Behave Yourself. What happens after COVID, if there is an after? So today we're talking about a practice and a word or so-called concept that has been with us for quite a while. As you know, we're in the middle of a global health pandemic and quite frankly, the COVID-19 virus is not showing any signs of slowing down or stopping. The best hope we have is a vaccine that could take everything away and get us back to normal. But in the meantime, people around the world have been adopting best practices such as hand washing, covering your face and mouth when you sneeze and cough and cleaning and disinfecting surfaces, as well as the practice of social distancing, quite literally keeping away from each other. But how is social distancing as a concept being adopted in the global south? I'd be, interesting, I'd be interested to know, Dwani, how are you coping with social distancing in India? How is it? How does it look like in India and in the Indian context? Yeah, so I think in India, social distancing is a little harder to implement because we well people who i know and people who i would say in my circle are sort of more equipped to do this a lot of the things can be delivered to us and a lot of what we need is not actually that far away but i think when it comes to the more informal or like the daily wage uh, labor that sector they're really struggling because a lot of their work involves them going somewhere and working for a little while and that's how they get paid and if everyone like that is asked to stay at home there's actually no income so there's i think it's really different across the different like segments of our population the higher up you get and the more protected the more protected you are and if you're a migrant or daily wage labor there's not very much happening and you are just at home stuck with nothing to do and no income and then the idea of social distancing has almost become like an economic problem for them and those families. So I think that's probably the biggest way that it's different and affected people. Mm, that's very true. I know we're facing the same situation in Kenya as well. What about in Ethiopia, Rosa? Um, it's very similar to what Duani said. Um, it's, it's a question of would you stay at home um, and do nothing um, and without any source of income um, and yeah, and put your family's risk, um, your family's life at risk, or would you um, go and work? That's, I think, the trade-off for many of um, low-income people and people who depend on daily wages. Um, 
what I would add to that, um, it might be a bit different than Kenya or India, um, is that we we use a lot of um, like banknotes um, for our um, transactions. So the banknotes are additional risk factors. So for example, I'm working from home. Um, I try my best to stay at home and keep this uh, precaution measures um, as much as possible. But still, whenever I want to buy something, I would use the cash notes, I mean the banknotes and coins. Um, and for a lot of the payments for be it public service or shops, we have to go in person. Um, so when, when you go in person, then there might be a queue, uh, you stay there for a long time. Um, and yeah, that's just an additional risk factor for, for people and very difficult to, to keep the social distance. And uh, yeah, I think in Ethiopia, it's both ways. The level of digitization is very, uh, very low. So we, we do things like in person, uh, we use the banknotes. In addition, you have this um, economic issue. Many people, for example, in Addis depend on daily wage, so they cannot stay at home um, and becomes a livelihood issue as well. I definitely agree. I know in Kenya, one of the biggest struggles has been the livelihoods question. Like if I do not get out of my house, then I won't be able to afford any food or rent for my family and for my home. But where do we draw the line between, you know, people meeting their daily needs and, and being at risk, right? So what are some alternatives that we can think of? Or, or maybe what have you seen being implemented uh, in, your, in your setting and in your context? that can actually help people both get protected and, and keep safe while still being able to meet their daily needs? Um, yeah, I think that's just like the million dollar question right now, right? What can people do to keep things going but also be safe? Um, before I get into that, I actually thought Rosa's point about banknotes was super interesting because in India, I've seen so many small stores start moving to mobile-based payments and they actually just prefer it because um, right now I think like people are wary of money. So even if they receive money, someone might not take it from them. And so I think it's just, it's interesting because it's like almost a little bit of a push for digital finance, if that's going to stick around. Um, but coming back to your question, uh, Lorna, I think, I think there's different solutions for different groups of people. So I think with people who are in the daily wage or like um, in the informal sector who work, who need to be at their place of work in order to work, I think people need to go back to work. And I think if they don't, it's just gonna be like the next big economic problem, especially for India. So I actually recently read an article where they talk about how um, they should open up in phases. So people like us who can very comfortably work from home should continue to do so. And people who need the money and who are really dependent on um, their job for their livelihood, almost from like a paycheck to paycheck way, should be allowed to go back. So that means things like construction, things like infrastructure, projects like that start opening up again. And then I think another thing that could work more for like, um, I don't want to say like white collar, but essentially like that group of people who work in offices is they could continue working from home on a rotational basis. So your office has a certain number of people and then you maintain social distancing within the office. And I think that's just like a really good incentive to also get down 
you know, the number of vehicles on the road, the pollution, the traffic, which are all really big problems in Delhi. So I kind of see it as a good solution. For you personally, what do you think other people expect you to do for social distancing? Probably not come into work, I think. I think that might be one, especially because the Bustara India office is in a co-working space. So that's just like the height of, that's as dangerous as it gets. Um, so I think probably not going to work, not like do what I would call frivolous activities, but of course that varies from person to person. Like I wouldn't necessarily like need to go into a mall, even if I had something to buy. I think there's alternatives. So I would say like seek the alternative that has the least amount of contact with another person. And then I think things that are that I've seen a lot of people that I know doing is like sort of have like lockdown parties and like go to each other's houses, which is also dangerous because you just don't know where people have been. So I think that's probably the expectation. And then of course, like whatever habits that we're supposed to practice in order to um, just be safe and keep those around us safe. Amy, what's happening in your context? Yeah, so social distancing rules have changed a lot. Um, I felt before Memorial Day weekend um, that people were just starting to get tired of social distancing. Um, I went to the beach with my mom and no one was wearing a mask and I was getting so much anxiety. And even in my neighborhood walks, people don't wear masks, which is awkward for me. Um, I actually approached two police officers who weren't wearing masks and I asked them to please do their part and protect the ser and serve their community in a different way. But um, I... I think now people recognize that racism is a public health problem. So it's a false dichotomy to ask people to socially distance um, and not show up for a protest where like uh, these protests have just as much as an, of an impact on people's health and like changing the lever of health outcomes for black people uh, um, and people of color. So now social distancing, like I went to a protest this weekend and it was impossible to social distance. Um, most people were wearing masks, but some weren't. So I feel like this week I'm going to have to get tested, but it, it, felt, it felt more important. So it felt like this moral imperative that outweighed social distancing and felt like it was more productive to health outcomes than social distancing would be at that time, if that makes sense. Right, right. It actually does. I think what's happening nowadays is that, you know, when this pandemic broke out, everybody was taking things so seriously, right? And everybody was all about, we have to wear masks, we have to keep out of offices, we have to social distance. That as time goes by, we have more and more of these serious issues that are coming up, both, both on a societal front and on a personal front, that people are just yearning to go back to the, the way they were living, right? Um, so Rosa, how is it like in Ethiopia? Like, what, what are you doing? doing to keep social distancing and and uh, how how is it for people in your community um it's it's really difficult to um to maintain social distancing for a longer period as you said um and that's what we are observing at the moment um for example people were very cautious um and many maintaining this social um distance whenever they are in public areas at the beginning of uh, the pandemic but now as it takes time people 
get relaxed and sometimes like in some areas you don't even feel like there is a pandemic which is um, somehow worrisome but I, I think it goes back to the livelihood issue um, for, for to ask people to, to stay at home um, for a longer period um, and also uh, this is very I mean highly populated and um, a lot of people um, depend on daily incomes and with that income um, their markets are mostly open markets and in these open markets um, you cannot maintain really like the, the line and the distance um, in the queue so that makes it very difficult but what um, people are currently doing in, in Addis for example is um, so for shops or um, any shopping malls or buildings before and banks and some government offices as well before you proceed to the gate they force you to wash your hand um, and also use like sanitizers they offer that so people are forced to, to do so um, that helps a bit and recently wearing masks in public is very obligatory um, so that also helps a bit but for me uh, my hope is that uh, while uh, maintaining this short-term um, oriented measures to encourage people also to the digital solutions so if payments could become um, more digitalized then that could minimize at least the risk factors because I'm staying at home but I still worry um, because I have interactions with other people through banknotes um, and coins, for example. Mm. So there has been um, a major step in terms of this. So there is a new proclamation um, in Ethiopia relaxing the requirements for digital financial service providers, kind of encouraging them to um, expand and um, inviting new players to the market as well. Um, so I'm hoping that we will use um, the current pressure and the pandemic um, as, a, as a trigger and change things for good. Um, and also it's good to know that we don't know how long this will last. So the early um, the measures are taken, um, I think it might help in the coming months as well. Right, right. That was actually going to be my next follow-up question is, you know, assuming we move uh, to digital financing, how accessible is that to uh, even the most remote people? So it's, it's a good thing that at least there's some policy work and there's some work going on to make sure that at least the most vulnerable are reached at this point. Thank you guys. So we're going to take a short, quick break that we'll be right back. We have loads more to talk about. So join us in a few. It's time for your behavioral science term of the week. You've heard today's guests talk about how people are not being as vigilant now as they were at the start of this pandemic. This is known as behavioral fatigue, a state where people get tired of adhering to a specific desired behavior for a prolonged period of time. This could lead to multiple effects. One, overconfidence. You think nothing will happen to me since nothing has happened to me this far. And two, licensing. You think you're doing your bit, like wearing your mask, and now that gives you the license to have your friends over or not wash your hands as frequently as you did before. Now, 
back to the episode. Welcome back, guys. We're still joined by our behavioral science experts as we talk about what social distancing looks like, not only in the global south, but in our day-to-day lives. So guys, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet that is a big issue uh, is the topic of social distancing and mental health. So we're talking about asking people to change their behaviors, right? So not interacting with folks, moving, you know, staying away from the office space, staying isolated, that that has a really big impact on mental health, especially in the global south. So let me go to you, Dwani. Um, what What does that mean for you when you hear mental health and social distancing? Yeah, I think, well, a lot of things. I mean, we were working on a study together, actually, that tries to understand how people are coping uh, with social distancing. So I feel like it's, and then doing the research for that, I think there's just a lot of things. There's, you know, you, a lot of people start developing depression or start feeling a lot of anxiety. I think for people who already have a lot of anxiety, there's even more, it's just compounded by the complete like sheer uncertainty that's out there and then I think there's also just like the limited mobility I think really takes a toll on you and I've seen people who like just have no desire to ever step out of the house go out on a walk and I think it's it's fine to like sit at home all day but I think the minute someone tells you to do it it just becomes like immediately it just becomes an like unlikable option so I think there's a lot of factors at play. I think, um, yeah, I think it could start into influencing productivity. It could start influencing motivation. I mean, on the study that we're doing, uh, we actually ask some questions from the PHQ-9, like how do you feel about yourself? Do you feel like you're a failure? How have you felt in the last few days? How often do you have negative thoughts? Um, And we're actually seeing uh, some high response rates for people feeling that more than twice or thrice a week or nearly every day. So I know I mentioned the study a couple of times already, but it was done. So just to give a bit more context, it's uh, being done with um, low income response to middle income um, population groups in Nairobi. Yeah, we're doing it as phone calls and as SMSs. So we're trying to get people in a bunch of different ways. So what kind of questions are you asking folks and are you asking uh, your participants and your respondents to kind of gauge how they are coping? Yeah, so the big one is the PHQ-9, which is an index that measures uh, depression in the respondents. So you are asked um, a series of behaviors such as like having negative thoughts about yourself or feeling like you're a failure or feeling demotivated. And then you're asked how often you felt that in the last week. And we're hoping to track this over time, but from our initial look, it seems like people are responding, are feeling quite negative in general. And that's the main question. And I think we're also sort of interested in who is their source of news and who, who they turn to with like questions or for advice. Mm-hmm. That's very, very interesting. And is the same study being conducted across multiple different settings? It's also being conducted in another uh, part of Kenya, but it's not yet in any other country. Okay. So what do you do as a researcher, as a behavior scientist? So you get this information uh, and uh, you find out that people are really feeling overwhelmed and down. Are there any policy implications to this? What do you do with that, with that data that could possibly have an impact on people's lives? 
especially in regards to mental health? I would hope that we can find some way to sort of use behavioral science and come up with a way to make people feel more connected to their community or to feed these insights to the policymakers that we know and work with and sort of be like, hey, we're seeing this. I think this is an important consideration when you're thinking about how to revise this measure. Uh, I know that in India, there was a lot of, at the beginning of the lockdown, there was a lot of talk about sort of like the framing of the messaging was really interesting because kind of like we are in this together and this is something that we're going to do to like protect our community. And there were ways to like bring people's motivation up. And I think um, those were one-off, but I think there's probably a way to inculcate that into the policy itself. So that's what I hope happens. But definitely, I think we will be thinking a lot about what to do with what we find. And I'm sure, Lorna, you can chip in on this as well, since you're also working on this study. I know, I know <laughs> that I'm tagging you for today. <laughs> Thank you so much, Duani, for that. I think it's so great that uh, I know I know the study is also taking place in a remote area, uh, and they're doing it different, uh, with different individuals from those that we're working with. That I'd be interested to hear also from uh, Rosa, like, what are you doing to at least, uh, you know, in your day-to-day -day life, I know you've had to work from home. Home. I know you've had to be maybe isolated from family and friends. How are you coping with that? And, and when it comes to mental health, what are you doing at least to keep yourself sane? That's a very good question, Lorna. Um, and I think in addition to the economic issues that we talk about, this mental health issue is another important component and consequence of this pandemic. Mental health is not something that we talk about as a, as a culture here. If you don't talk about it, the awareness level is also um, that low. So it makes it even like difficult at this time for people to handle it and to be conscious um, and yeah, and do uh, whatever they have to do to, um, to stay healthy. Um, and, and for my case, it's been three three and a half months since I'm working from home. Um, and I try to keep my distance um, and I, I live um, alone, but like I have um, neighbors in the compound that we hang out sometimes um, for, for coffee, but like everyone would stay close to our doors and chat. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that helps. Uh, and I also uh, do video calls with friends um, and phone calls also with uh, my family members and relatives. Uh, that helps a lot, but um, we have a very collective culture and we get used to these gatherings and we do like uh, um, a big coffee ceremony at least over the weekends. Um, that's, that's like um, what we, I, I'm not, for example, a very coffee person but I still enjoy that gathering. I would visit my cousins over the weekend just to have that. Mm. Um, and that social interaction is also our um, kind of our way of getting rid of this um, stress, depression or whatever, uh, because people do not really go um, to, to see a doctor if they don't feel that they're um, depressed or um are stressed out um, and we are missing that and then you have the economic pressure like for 
many other people that I know, for example. Mm. Um, it makes it very difficult. Um, and for people who do not have access to internet, um, for people with low, low income who cannot make like phone calls to everyone whenever they want to, um, it's also costly for them. So I think the mental health consequence um, is something that need additional attention. I don't think we are doing much in Ethiopia, for example. And yeah, it's it's difficult, difficult time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think one thing that you said that really resonates with me is that in some of the cultures we come from, it's not easy for people to speak about mental health openly. And that's a very big challenge, right? So what can be done in these societies? I know, you know, for us in our workplace, if you are stressed one day, you can easily say, you know, I would like to take a day off to just relax and, and, and chill. But for many people who don't have an avenue to kind of of release any stress or tension like what do we do in those kind of scenarios and, I, and I'm thinking about you know in some low-income communities or in some very traditional communities if we if people are not openly allowed to speak about mental health issues what resources can be provided to them uh, in instances like for example in Ethiopia yeah I mean so one of the reasons why people do not want to talk about mental health openly is the stigma that is attached to it. I have friends, but um it might not be like representative of the the larger population in in Ethiopia, but like I have friends who um I would call them or they would call me whenever we feel worried about um some situations or we feel stressed out, so um, that really helps. But I think in terms of the general public, that's a long way to go. Um, and I, I think it should be part of the um, current interventions um, during the pandemic, um, raising awareness like, it's okay to talk to your friend um, over a call, or maybe have a help center that people could talk to because they don't see them like they don't see them in the face um you can't keep it like anonymous but still i think people might be interested to to chat about what they are stressed about or um their worries and how to deal with it but i think in terms of um practices i don't think we have much and i i feel like it's overlooked as um many of the interventions and the focus has been all on the livelihood um, we have been recently hearing a lot of um, like domestic violence reports. So that's also partly um, that people are spending at home like uh, for longer period together. Um, there are like additional pressures, economic pressures for for the household hates, and that exacerbates people's reactions at home. And um, domestic violence is again something that's not very reported. And it even makes it worse at the moment because the women have to stay at home and they don't have like anyone to talk to because if it's um if it was like before the pandemic, then they might talk about it with their neighbors or close friends or family members. But now um you are confined at home and you have this domestic violence issues and it makes it very, very difficult. 
So uh, coming back to you again, Duani, and the interesting study that you were telling us about, uh, can you tell us what you're doing to try to understand the challenges that women are facing right now? I know the study is being done in the Kenyan context, and maybe you can give us a highlight into, you know, what are you doing? What kind of questions are you asking to try to understand the challenges that women are facing right now, especially uh, during this pandemic? Yeah, so I think right now, like you said, we're at the level of just understanding it. I think to ask a question about um, domestic violence is really, really sensitive. And that too, we're not doing it face to face, right? We're doing it on the phone and we're doing it on SMS. So there's a lot of precaution that we have to take. So I think just given the context, we're just trying to understand the rates, the sort of like norms around it, like how much do people know? How much are they seeing? Um, and we have... Uh, we just have one question and it's asked in third person about someone who lives in your community. And the idea of this question, I'm sure Amy can talk a lot about why we ask these kinds of questions. Um, but the idea is not to ask the woman that we're, that we're speaking to directly, whether they face this, it's to kind of talk about their community and sort of use it as a proxy for themselves. And um, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing right now. And it's really interesting to see how this differs between like Nairobi and our other sample, which is in another part of Kenya. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I think it brings me to Amy as well uh, when we're trying to think about, you know, designing studies and projects that address these sensitive questions, right? So we have issues concerning uh, domestic violence and mental health. So if someone is interested in carrying out this research, whether it has a behavioral component to it or just carrying out just a general survey in their community just to find out how vulnerable groups are affected during this time, what are some of the tips that you have for us uh, Amy on how to design a study that that addresses these challenges and targets vulnerable uh, individuals. Um, there's so much to consider when designing in remote interventions or remote surveys for populations who are at risk. Um, so right now I'm working on a study that looks at how can we measure online to offline behaviors, specifically around family planning, um, attitudes, perceptions, knowledge, and uptake? And some precautions that we're taking are, where do we sample women from? Do we restrict it only to wards and locations that have services available? We decided, yes, this is super important. If we're asking sensitive questions that may bring up uh, recollections of trauma or indicate a need for additional services, women need to be able to access these services in their communities. So we restricted our sample locations to places where these types of services are available. Um, we got really in depth with what types of services this looks like. So is this in person? How far would they have to walk to it? Um, is this a hotline? How often is the hotline open? Um, so really to avail those to participants equally and to make sure you can be as thorough and detailed as possible. Um, another thing that we're doing in remote surveys is introducing a safe word during the consent process um, and to try to have that be as natural as possible. So um, our safe word is water, water is the problem. And this is something that uh, participants can say over the phone if they feel that their confidentiality is at risk. Another thing that we're doing is um, so we're doing a WhatsApp focus group 
and we're telling people ahead of time that their confidentiality is inherently more at risk because your image, your phone number, and your name is already availed to the other people on the focus group. So first we want to disclose that upfront, ask if people are aware of that and if that's okay. Um, we'll also encourage them to use aliases and even in the conversation ask how people would like to be referred to. At the end of each conversation, we'll prompt people to delete that focus group chat. So in case their phone is used by another member of the household, that conversation cannot be accessed. And then for each focus group, we will relaunch and start a new chat amongst participants. What would have happened in a world without Zoom and Skype and all this technology? Um, which gets me to my last question, I guess, is what happens after this? Like we've seen how we've had to adapt economically, socially, we've talked about the impact that this you know, coronavirus has ha has on women and it's basically changing the way we live and will change the way we live for the next few months and years. So is there a life after, especially when we're thinking about social distancing, is there an alternative? You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Rosa. Well, um, like, I think few things will change. Um, the major thing for me is the digitization issue in Ethiopia. Mm. Um, people have been like sticking to what they're familiar with, which is like using cash, not, cash or banknotes um, and doing things like in person um, services are more kind of um, provided in kind of uh, physically, not really, uh, we don't have much of this e-commerce um, delivery platforms um, mm. or um, mobile money payment platforms um, so i think this would this will change and people would be pushed to that because of the current situation um, mm. and in terms of like household dynamics um, i think for many development actors i think this could be also an opportunity to um, kind of see what kind of interventions could be done for women economic empowerment and um, reporting domestic violence and how to manage that. Um, and most importantly, um, I don't know how much this, how far this would change, but in terms of mental health as well, I hope this could change that people would be willing to talk about mental health, increase their awareness and be I'm conscious about it and um, get rid of all the stigma, um, which is very counterproductive and um, affecting people's motivation um, to, to report and to work on their mental health. Right, absolutely. I love all that. Uh, what about you, Dwani? How do you think the world will change, or at least in your context in India, how do you think things will change after this? Is there an alternative to social distancing? How are things going to look like? How are things? How will things change? Um, I think I really agree with a lot of what Rosa was saying. I think it's going to be a very similar situation here. Hopefully, things will get more digital. Hopefully, we'll figure out like delivery channels or service models that kind of work without um, the level of mobility that's needed. 
I think another thing is I really hope this brings out a lot of the bigger policy questions that we've been avoiding like you know how do you account for mental health when you're like putting in place essentially an emergency or how do you account for like the most vulnerable populations how do you account for migrants um so yeah I think a lot of what Rosa said really resonated with me and there's just like one more thing I'd like to add in terms of not so much of what do I see happening but what I really really hope happens is um I think during this time we've all seen especially in India I don't know how it is in other parts of the world we've seen blue skies in Delhi which I've never seen in my life and we've seen clear views of like mountains you know and these beautiful like dream photos of places that just ne- haven't looked like that in our lifetime and I really hope that people for one don't get obsessed with trying to make up for the period that they've lost and try to sort of go like crazy on the economic activity and just undo all of it because whatever like environmental peace we've had has really been at the cost of um of people's livelihoods but i think it's also shown us that there is this other world out there that we are like ruining in the way that we live our lives and i hope that there's something that we can do in terms of like from the smaller solutions to the bigger solutions like can people who can afford not to go to work can we do remote working can we have like a policy for people in delhi to not go into work if they don't need to like you know four day work week and work from home on the fifth day but can we also do things like think about all the old energy plants that are in india and sort of like phase them out and start using renewable energy and things that we have access to but we just don't prioritize because it's just not that important in the larger scheme of things which is you know of course not true but that's just what it comes across as so i feel like this period while it's been really turbulent and has given us a lot of um things to think about it's also sort of shown us like a slower way of living that we've been forced into and a way of living that could have a good impact on the world and i feel like if we can find that balance between the between the economic progress that we need to make as developing countries and the environmental like sustainable way that we need to make that progress i think that could be an incredible outcome of this whole thing right i love that turning something as tragic as covid to our own good amy i'd love to get your thoughts as well as how you see your world changing after this pandemic something that i've just been thinking about and want to take with me is how something pretty invisible has had profound changes across all of us and it's something that we're experiencing at the same time um so something i've been thinking about is going forward what else can we do to foster collective empathy that doesn't take a virus to get us to this point i will say that over the past couple weeks i've seen more families walking outside together and that's been really lovely um and i think people have been more intentionally trying to disconnect from technology because we seem to be on it so much so i think like people are treasuring the time offline even more um but i love duani's like metaphor of the blue sky like i i think that was beautiful i don't i don't have anything profound to say <laughs> absolutely absolutely 
absolutely. And uh, I think I definitely agree. I think, you know, out of this uh, pandemic and out of this uh, so-called tragedy that people are, are, that we're experiencing right now, I hope that, you know, we, we do come out of this uh, safe and sound and also changed, especially on some of the topics that we mm -hmm. talked about economically, financially, uh, in terms of promoting mental health and promoting also awareness uh, and, and safety for vulnerable groups and individuals. And it touches upon each of our lives. And even the way we do our work, it's going to change how we do our research, uh, as you guys had mentioned. Uh, so thank you so much, guys. It's been such an incredible episode. And for all our listeners out there, please send in all your comments and views. This is a topic that we'll continue talking about. And we're so interested to also hear how this COVID situation and social distancing is impacting you in your communities and in your lives. So thank you so much. Thank you to my wonderful guests and we look forward to seeing you next time. Remember, behave yourselves. Thank you guys. Thanks, Lorna. Thanks, Dorian and Rosa. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> And that's it for this episode. Many special thanks to our colleagues that joined us for this conversation. Next week, our final episode concluding this four-part series on COVID-19. Behave Yourself is a podcast produced by the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Busara Center. And you can read about the work that we do at the Busara blog on Medium. As always, remember, behave yourself.